Hey, this is Rob Nash, and you're listening to Talking Blues. by your site is I can't seem to find your CDs there, which is very unusual. Right. <laughs> Why is that? You know, we used to print CDs and we would go around and we'd try to sell them and, you know, our, our uh, demographic is young people and they grab the CD, they're like, how do I put this onto my phone? And it was like, <laughs> and man, do you feel old in a hurry in those moments, you know, but what's really interesting now is uh, you can print vinyl. Vinyl actually is outselling downloads so that's an interesting step back because my dad had a whole collection of vinyls back home but yeah people just don't buy cds anymore it's uh especially for our demographic that that are in our audience so yeah it was weird for me i i'm still a guy that loves throwing in cds you know so yeah it just just doesn't happen anymore it's a weird world it is a weird world perhaps not a better world it's funny when people talk about distracting driving and they're like yeah. you shouldn't be on your phone Think back to those times where you're like switching CDs and you're looking at a map, you know, and it's like, really, is this distracting driving saying Siri, you know, call Bob? Or even worse, cassettes. Yeah, sure, sure. So, Rob, you have an interesting, you have an interesting story. I want to find out when music came into your life. Yeah, well, you know, I have a very musical family. Um, my parents had uh, five kids. They had a family band. It was like a Southern gospel thing. It was very legalistic, very religious, and uh, lots of harmonies, banjos, and mandolins. They all were growing up as a family band and getting married, and then, whoops, here comes Robbie. So I did not grow up with them. And um, so I, I, they had the family band. My dad wanted me to play guitar like my older brother Dave, and I was a little bit of a rebel, so I'm like, if I'm going to play music, I want to play drums. So I played some drums. And I liked playing drums, but I wasn't allowed to listen to a lot of mainstream music, right? And then I got a scholarship to move away when I was 15 um, to, to, to go away to school. Um, I'm six foot five, played a lot of sports. And I got out there and people started saying like, oh, you play drums. Oh, cool. Can you play Guns N' Roses? Can you play Nirvana? And I was like, well, I'm not allowed to live. Wait, I live here now. And people started showing me Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and, you know, the Foo Fighters and I'm going this is incredible like I just loved music but I never thought I'd be a musician um I learned how to play drums but never learned how to read music my worst mark in school is music I tried it for the <laughs> choir I didn't make it my voice wasn't good enough but you know it's it's funny when I was 17 years old you know, I had a, a an experience that kind of rocked my world. And me and my friends, small town Manitoba, you know, we're going for a draw ride. I was 17 years old. My friend was driving, not very experienced, icy roads. And uh, we pulled up past Walnut's car before getting to school. And we got hit by a semi-truck. Um, and our vehicle was crushed. The semi was written off. And my friends were fine. But I was found with no pulse, not breathing. Um the man closest to that was driving by happened to be a first responder. And I met him a few years ago before he passed and he resuscitated me. And he told me he knew my heart started beating again when blood gushed, started gushing out of my head. Because um, if, if you're cut open and your heart's not beating, there's no movement of blood, right? So all of a sudden, blood's pouring out of my head. He's waiting for the ambulance. And, you know, he was describing, he was trying to hold my skull together so I wouldn't bleed out. And his wife told me he couldn't move his arms for like days after that, because he was 
holding it so tight with his muscles. And uh, so they, my family got the call that no one wants to get and they got to the hospital and obviously I was still alive, but they said, we're going to rebuild his skull with uh, titanium. And uh, this part of my shoulder and chest here, there's uh, stainless steel. And I woke up from my coma. Uh, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who my parents were because of the brain damage. And um, uh, what's really interesting is when you get hit on the head really hard like that, it erases your temporary memory. So when my memory started coming back, I started remembering childhood and all that after a while. How long did it take for the memory to start coming back? Well, it was kind of like the movie Fifty First Dates. <laughs> Where I'd wake up, you know, and then they'd be like, you know, Rob, are you okay? I'm like, where am I? What happened? You were hit by a semi-truck. And I'd be like, what? And I'd fall asleep and then they'd remind me again. And when I got home, um, you know, my, my mom and my nurse, my, my mom and my sisters were doing the nurses' jobs and stuff like that. So they would, they were taking care of me at home. Um, but my sister, she describes, uh, you know, she came to cut my hair because it was all stained with blood, right? So she cut my hair. She came back the next day and she didn't remember. Like I was totally you know, having conversation with her. The next day she came back and I didn't know that she had been there the day before cutting my hair because I couldn't maintain the memories, right? And my friends would come visit me and I'd say like the next day I'd be like, man, why does nobody come visit me, you know? And then my mom would say like, you know, you know, and Ryan was here yesterday and Bulldog and Snoop, they were all here. And I was like, why didn't you tell me they were here? And she'd be like, you hung out with them all day. So even when I went back to school, which I wasn't supposed to, I was in grade 12, but I just, I want to be back with normal life, right? I want to be with my friends, but they said, you know, just because of the trauma in my brain, I wasn't supposed to try, but I just, I went back anyways. But I don't even remember those first month and a half, two months of going back to school because it was just slowly catching up. And uh, once school ended, you know, I had gone from a six foot, six foot five guy that played every sport to a guy getting bathed by his mom. And after high school, I was like, now what? Like, I can't play sports. And all of a sudden, I started getting really dark thoughts. Like, who am I? What's my identity now? And I got to this really dark place. I was suicidal. No one knew. None of my family members, none of my buddies. No one knew. I kept it all inside. And I think a big thing for me was everybody threw the cliches at me trying to comfort me, right? They're like, people told me, oh, it was fate, you know, everybody, you know, the, the semi had your name on it, you know, and uh, some of my family told me that, you know, God spanked me with a semi because I'm a bad kid, you know, it's a, a life lesson, and that, that made me angry. But the most common thing people would say to me, and they said it with good intentions, but they would say, everything happens for a reason. And some people take that and be like, oh, wow, I got to find out the reason. For me, I was like, it happened for a reason. Now I've got to figure out the reason it happened to me. Like, and it just brought me to this really dark place. Like, so I'm not in control. Just you get hit by a semi, but for some reason you have to figure it out. And that brought me to a really dark place for two years. Didn't want to be alive. And then one day somebody came up to me and said, you're trying to figure out the reason you were hit by that semi truck. Right, Rob? And I said, yeah. He goes, I know what it is. I'm like, what is it? He goes, you got hit by a semi truck because you guys were going too fast on an icy road. <laughs> Shit happens. What are you going to do with it? And that sounds simple, but that set me free. I was like, okay, I'm not a puppet. I get to make some decisions. I got a second chance. I got to do something with this. And I'm like, I had this conviction in me because for two years, I was terrified to fall asleep because last time I was waking up, I found out I was hit by a semi-truck. So I was scared to fall asleep because what if I, 
something else happened to me, right? And and uh, I kept having this nightmare that I was watching my own funeral and nobody was there. Nobody cared that I lived or that I died because I had never done anything for anyone but me. So I was done with the anger, the bitterness. And I was like, I want to do something that matters. Like I'm like waiting for a prompting and I would have listened to anything. And I thought I'd hear like a voice and I tell this at every concert I play. I'm like, I thought I'd hear a voice telling me to like move to Africa and build a well. And I would have done it. I would have done anything. But this is what I heard. Phone the semi-driver, they hit you and tell me you're alive. And I was like, what? So I phoned the police. I'm like, hey, can I get the phone number of the semi-driver that hit, hit our car? Like it was our fault. But And police are like, no, we can't give you that number. But it, this prompting would leave me alone. So I kept phoning. And finally, one cop gave me his number. He goes, here. I didn't give it to you. But I called this trucker from the United States. And he calls me, picks up. And I said, hey, is this so-and-so? And he goes, yeah. So I felt I should call you and tell you, like, I made it. I'm alive. I'm okay. And I could tell it set him free. But the significance in that story wasn't what happened to him. It's what happened to me. I had never felt significant before. My life had never mattered to anybody, I thought, other than myself. And I was like, I want to feel that again. And I thought, how could I tell my story so other people don't have to die like I did before they start to live and feel significant? How many other people are like me? having dark thoughts, not talking about it. I got to tell my story. And you can ask any adult in the world, what do you do? They all have an answer. Ask them, why do you do it? Very few people know what to say. For me, it wasn't about what I do, play music. For me, it was why I was, why I was doing it. I started with why. I wanted to tell my story. What's a good way to tell a story? Music. Bono said it. Fame is like currency. You can spend it on whatever you want. And I figured music would be a good way to tell a story. So just the fact that you survived something like something so horrendous and you were actually pronounced dead, but you came through, did it surprise you that you felt that you were in a dark place like that? Like, because in some ways you think, oh, I should be grateful because I'm, I'm alive. So did it surprise you that you were in a very dark place after going through something like that? Well, it can do different things to you. Like I did one interview and the guy, he said, well, it's kind of good that you were hit by that semi-truck, right, Rob? I'm like, why is that good? He goes, well, look what you've done with it. I was like, yeah, but the semi didn't make me do it. Not everybody that gets goes through trauma turns it into something good. He goes, well, you know Rick Hansen, right, in the wheelchair? I said, yeah. He goes, Rick Hansen said he's happy he's in a wheelchair because of what he's been able to do with his story. And I said, that says a lot about Rick Hansen. <laughs> doesn't say it, but wheelchairs. Not everyone in a wheelchair has done what Rick Hansen has done with his story. I said, so getting back to it, like when people say everything happens for a reason, I say it every concert that we play. I say, bad things don't happen for a reason. Bad things happen with potential. My accident had the potential to leave me angry, bitter, suicidal the rest of my life, but there was the potential. I could take it, make a second chance, do something with it. But that's a decision. We're all going to see trauma. Now, do I want anyone else to have to go through what I did? Like, you can learn from tragedy. But I tell my story. And you tell your story. You listen to your parents. You watch movies. You watch stories. Like, man, I don't want to go there. You can learn from hitting rock bottom. But you can learn from somebody else hitting rock bottom and telling their story. That's why I want to play music. Okay, so you decided to play music. But at this point, you had played some drums. Yeah. Maybe a little guitar. You hadn't really sang that much yeah um 
so we don't really know if you're even musically talented, but you decide that this is what I want to do. I'm going to tell my story through music. I, I, I could sing. You know, I, I had some gifts, but in grade 12, we had to predict where we would be in 12 months or in 10 years after grad. I said I'd be working at the local bank. I was not a dreamer. But when you go through something like I wasn't a risk taker. And to be a musician, like you, you got to be all in. It's a difficult business to make it in. So I'm not scared of risk anymore. So, and I, and I, when young musicians come up and they ask for advice, I always say, find out why you're doing it. If you're doing it to be famous, you don't sign autographs for a long time. If you're doing it to be rich, you don't get money for a long time. But if you don't, if it's about why I want to share my story, my song with somebody, that gets you through the days where there's four people in the audience and there's $4 in your bank account. And that's just what I stuck to. I'm not, I'm committed and I got better at your craft. The first time you hear yourself recorded, you're thinking, that's not what my voice sounds like. <laughs> because you, it's like when you hear yourself on an answering machine, why does my voice sound like that? And we did three albums and got better, got better at writing. And then on our fourth album, got the record deal. And, and yeah, I was flown out to this big studio in Vancouver, super intimidating, you know, all these gold records on the walls and, um, we sit down and I'm like, okay. And they said, what do you want to write a song about, Rob? We're here to help you write hits. And if I remember the first day, I was like, I met this homeless guy at a soup kitchen. I want to write a song about him. They're like, okay. So I wrote, wrote a song about Hello, called Hello Goodbye. That night they drive me to my hotel and they're like, that's cool that you got that off your chest, about a song about a homeless person, but nobody on the radio wants to hear about homeless people. We need you to write hits. But we launched the album and that song... Uh, ended up going to number three in Canada, a song about a homeless person, you know, and I always have tried to stick with that, sing songs that actually matter. Like you can write a good party song and a love song, and those are good things, you know, uh, but but if you can say something that's going to register and get to somebody's heart, like everybody walking around has earphones in their ears. They listen to something. Music can calm you down when you want to go to sleep. It can rile you up before a hockey game. Use it, you know. Hello, Goodbye is a great song. But when you had success, that it went to three, what did that do for you? What did that song, Doing Well, mean to you? I'll never forget being in Kitchener, Ontario. There's 10,000 people. And and um, I said, I wrote this song about this homeless guy, and I'm telling the story. And I said, this song is called Hello, Goodbye. And the crowd just starts cheering, you know? And I'm like, and there's a video of it on YouTube where I'm like, you guys know this song? And the crowd goes crazy and they start singing. And I hear them singing back. It's what every musician wants to hear. But they're, they're telling a story of, of heartbreak and triumph. And you're like, oh, man, this is everything I wanted. But, you know, we did this in Canada. And, like, we got a couple top ten hits, but we were still just scratching the surface. But we were sharing the stage with some big acts. So you're trying to, like, gain your momentum, right? Then our label wanted to get us down to the States and overseas. And I was thinking, man, how is this gonna? How long do I have to do this before I do something that matters? Like it's fun playing big concerts and crowd surfing, but I'm like, how do I get to a place where I get to tell the stories, right? And then um, we're getting ready to go down south, and then all of a sudden I got, uh, I got this offer to take my guitar for nine months through schools in Canada, just me and a guitar, no pay, and tell my story. And I was like, done, I'm going to do it. 
And everyone thought I was crazy because I owed lots of money because I had a record contract, management, publishing deal, all that stuff. But I'm like, refinanced my home and I'm like, let's go do this. And um, after that nine months, I wasn't sure what would happen. But schools started calling back. Other communities saying, hey, we heard you really had an impact on this community. Can, can, can you come here? And then all of a sudden, reserves started calling, indigenous reserves. And then we started getting calls from prisons and youth detention centers. And I'm like, now I'm a big, my dad was a big Johnny Cash fan. So I'm like, prison shows? <laughs> like the man in black, giddy up? I thought, this is awesome. So what gets most musicians off, you know, people throwing their bras on stage, <laughs> for me, sitting in front of inmates, I'm like, wow. And sitting down with them afterwards, hearing their stories. Because the difference between me and that person is often just a starting point. Like their upbringing, right? And then I started writing songs together with them. And we'd go to alternative schools, for example, uh, where all the kids that get kicked out and arrested, kicked out of the regular schools, and they put into small groups in alternative schools. And I'd go in there and I'd share my story, listen to their stories. I'm like, I remember one day I was like, let's write a song together. And so I came back 11 days later and I was like, who, who wants to, uh, who wants to write the words of the song with me? And four of them were like, raised their hands because they loved writing poetry. I was like, cool. I said, who wants to learn drums? So we got drum sets donated, taught them drums, guitar, piano, bass. And I was like, perfect. I'm like, um, how about this? Let's go through the whole process. Who wants to learn how to record? So we brought them to a studio, you know, let's do a photo shoot. We got all the girls makeovers. <laughs> picked out some models. We showed them how to design the album cover. And we wrote the song called Trouble Child with them. And and then we started putting the band back together and I got new band members too. But And then we were going from school to school. We couldn't meet the demand anymore. And then before COVID, you know, we were getting back into huge auditoriums, into theaters, even arenas where we were, it was all free. <laughs> we did it through my charity. We, um, We'd pay for the school buses. We'd pay for the lights, the sound, everything. And we just did it because people needed help. But in the beginning, when I did the tour, I'd tell my story, but I still never said that I was suicidal. I just told my story, hey, this happened to me. Make every day count because, you know, this happened to me. So you don't, you're not always promised tomorrow. So make every day count. And then one day I got a call from a school in Ontario and they said, can you come right away? We just had a suicide. And on the girl's suicide note, it revealed that she had a pact with one of her friends. They had a deal. If you kill yourself, I'll kill myself. The principal said, we don't know who it is. Can you come right away? Now, what do you do in a moment like that? Well, our flights are this, our hotels are this. You know, it's like, yeah, we'll come and we'll figure it out later. And now I was in an interesting moment because I'm on stage. There's, let's say, a thousand students in front of me. Somebody sitting in front of me was about to take their life. I don't know where they're sitting. I don't know who they are. And I'm getting to this moment in the show where it's like, Rob, you got to share that you were there once too. My own team didn't know. I had never told anyone. And I'm thinking, what are the students going to think of me? What are the staff going to think of me if I reveal this weakness I once had? And I got to this place and I said, I know somebody in this room is thinking about taking their life. You're not alone. I was there once too. And I thought that would be the end of my tour, right? but it felt like a thousand pounds off me and the relationship between me and the audience and my team went to a new level. And afterwards I'm getting hugs and from students and staff. And, and, uh, this girl comes up to me and she pulls a note out of her pocket and hands it to me, old crinkled up paper. And I was like, what's this? 
She goes, it's my suicide note. She goes, I was going to kill myself this weekend. She goes, here, I don't need this anymore. She hands me her note. And she walks off with a school counselor. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I don't understand. Like, she didn't. This wasn't freshly written. Why did she have this on her? And I spoke with a police officer that kind of specializes in um, teen suicide. And they said, yeah, very rarely is the note freshly written. People write their note and they carry it with them for two to three months. Waiting for somebody to push them over the edge. Note. I was like, oh, this is this is a thing. This is now my focus. Whether we were getting razor blades, bottles of pills, suicide notes. And uh, we collected... In our 10-year tour before COVID, we were handed 917 suicide notes. Wow. That doesn't include all the ones on Instagram and YouTube of sending us videos of ripping them up and burning them and stuff and getting the help that they needed. And I'm like, now I, you know, touring with some of these big bands, you meet them backstage and you think they're going to be so fulfilled because they're successful? They're some of the emptiest people you'll meet <laughs> because they got to success. They never went on to significance. That's where your life starts to matter to the world around us. You know, and then, uh, you know, COVID hit. We did our last show at the arena in Medicine Hat. Walked off stage and felt like the world stopped. And I looked at my team like, we got to find a new way to get our message out there. We didn't know if COVID would shut this thing down for two months and six months, you know. But I was like, it's going to be a while before they let 20, 30 schools into a building. So we started uh, following up with some of the students who gave us suicide notes. Where are they now? So we did, we've been working on a documentary that's coming out. We just got finished. Following up with some of these students, where are they now? And man, has it been moving. Because a lot of these students are uh, have been working with us for a while, but some of these stories are just so moving. So we're doing this documentary, and uh, it's just been so incredible. And you, some of the gift, most gifted people are the ones we lose to mental illness. I don't know how often you go back to that guy who, who was caught up in this dark world, who contemplated suicide. I don't know if that's totally a thing in the past or is that something that stays with you. But do you go back there a lot? Like, I mean, obviously, because of what you do, you kind of have to. And that's where this whole thing comes from. But personally, do you go back there a lot? Well, I think mental health is a lot like physical health. There's days where you feel great physically. And there's days you feel 20%. And I think we all struggle with our mental health. Some days you feel 80%. Sometimes you feel 30 you know, and depression is a real thing. It's very different than sadness. And, um, you know, the difference between depression is not happiness. It's, it's peace. It's purpose. That's what I find, you know. So for me, um, when I meet somebody, uh, I just say, like, like they come up and this just happened at the mall. This girl's like, you know, Rob, man, your music so means so much to me. You know, I was diagnosed with depression. I have suicidal thoughts, you know, and your music means so much to me, you know? And I was like, oh, so you're like me. She's like, well, what do you mean? I said, you hurt deeply, but you love deeply too, don't you? And she's like, yeah. I said, you hurt deeply, but you can see when others are hurting, can't you? She's like, yeah. I was like, yeah. There's something beautiful about your emotions. Like, Depression is very real, but it's funny that we don't get diagnosed with empathy. Like, there's something beautiful about your emotion. Like, I'm not always against medication, but for me, it's like, let's channel this. Like, for me, I found a way to channel my dark thoughts. Some of my songs are dark, but I found a way to get them out of my head and, and into a song. 
If I didn't find that, I'm not sure what would happen. Look at Hollywood. How many suicides? How many overdoses? I actually think after talking with hundreds of thousands of young people, I think there's a connection between the arts and mental illness. I have extra emotions. <laughs> Some people go through a tough day, they wipe it off, keep walking. I can't. I go through a tough day and it's it drains me. And I thought I was cursed with extra emotion. I was like, you're not cursed, you're gifted. You got something special. Uh, <laughs> channel it. I that One kid in the documentary, um, he was, uh, we met him on a reserve in northern Saskatchewan. Indigenous kid, getting bullied, you know, just, he was suicidal. I met with him, I'm like, are you glad I'm still here? He goes, yeah. I'm like, somebody's going to say the same thing to you one day. This is bigger than you. There's a reason you're here. You got to fight because you're going to meet somebody with the same story as you one day and you get to be that kid's hero. I said, channel it. Like, do you like painting, dancing? Do you like music, poetry? He goes, I love music. If you could play any instrument, what would you play? He goes, guitar. I'm like, play guitar then. And he goes, um, and he points at his arm. He was born a below the elbow amputee. He just has an elbow on the one arm. I said, don't give me any bullshit excuses. Play. And you plant a seed like that with a kid like Dylan. And you hope he takes it and waters it. And in last summer, sends me an email to our website. Thanks for pushing me, Rob. Here's a video of me playing at the talent show. He, in two and a half years, he is ripping on the guitar better than I can with 10 fingers. He has a callus on the end of his elbow that he uses as a pick. And he's amazing. He's in our documentary. And when we go back on tour, that kid's going to be on stage with us. But not so that he'll be my guitarist the rest of his life. I think he's going to go on and do bigger things than I've ever done. So when we do our shows, I'd be like, we met this girl in prison. You know, she had an eating disorder, blah, blah, blah. You know, do you want to meet her? And the crowd's like, oh. And then we bring her out and she'd sing a song with us. Giving examples. See, that's the thing is when we tell stories about addiction, we seem to only talk about the overdoses. When we talk about mental health, we talk about the suicides. And we can learn from tragedy, but balance that. Stories of victory and triumph. When we play one song, it's called Thief of Colors. The entire time on the LED walls behind us, there's videos of kids ripping up their razor blades, you know, tattooing the lyrics on our songs on their arms, you know, the lyrics to the songs. And it, it's just, and people see that and go like, oh, I want to be like that girl on the screen. I want to rip up my note. I believe in myself. Like I have, somebody needs my story. So purpose is, is for me, the antidote to pain. When you're going through the dark period, what made you overcome it? Like what made you not commit suicide? Well, honestly, um, one thing you learn when you go to addictions meetings, because I struggled deeply with addiction to painkillers after everything I went through, but it, what they teach at Narcotics Anonymous meetings or AA meetings is they say just for today. Don't try to figure out a week or a month or a year how you're going to get it to graduation. You know, just just for today, I got this. Just for today, I'll fight and I'll stay alive. And I always tell young people, like, it's like, <laughs> I'm in grade nine. I'm never going to make it to grad. Don't think about grad. Think about today. Start with that. And I always say, like, if you wake up today and you look for pain, you will find it. If you get up and you look for hope, you look for help, you look for strength, you can find that too. And sometimes that's a daily decision for me as well. You know, um, I lost my dad this last year, you know, and Sorry about that. I, yeah, I, I shot a music video, landed in uh, 
landed at the airport, got a call that my dad had a heart attack and I didn't make it to the hospital in time to say goodbye. And suddenly I'm having to practice what I preach. You know, it's like, hmm. Yeah, I, I got to find... I, I wrote a song on the new album. It's called um, Favorite Cliché. It talks about the fact that, you know, people started saying to me like, don't worry, Rob, the pain will go away. You'll get over this. And I was like, wait, that pain's not going to go away. <laughs> like, if I think about my dad, there's going to be some pain there. But I'm like, that. I don't like that cliche, the pain's going to go away. Like, if somebody, I've met with one family, they lost their daughter, and people told them, don't worry, the pain will go away. I'm like, it's not going to go away. <laughs> and it shouldn't, because you're never going to forget about her. But for me, I, in the song Favorite Cliche I wrote, it's like, my favorite cliche now is, I'll find, um, I'm trying to think the exact lyric how I sing it, because the album will be out very soon. <laughs> but I, I can find peace in the midst of the pain. You know, the two can coexist. You can have pain at peace and peace and pain at the same time, which sounds absurd, but I found it. If we go back to that guy who was offered the nine month tour of detention centers and prisons and schools, did you know what you wanted to get out of that? And, and you know, the, the, the fact that you would be offered this, but no money is pretty crazy to me. Yeah. But but what did you hope that you would get out of that experience? You know what? I think if I tried to plan it out, I knew music would be a good outlet, and I searched for how and when I would find it. If I would have known when I started the band at 20 years old that it would have taken me till now, all the small steps I'd have to take, I don't think I would have done it. You know, now, you know, I, I did, you know, how many, five, six, seven different albums? I don't even know. Before I really felt like, okay, this is it. I'm in school. Like, okay, I found it. I'm here. This must be it. And then a year later, it's like, oh, we're bringing five schools together. This is it. Now we're shooting a documentary. Oh, this is it. <laughs> like, I think if you plan out the destination, I, I would have given up a long time ago. If I would have known at 20, it would take me to now to feel this fulfilled and significant. <laughs> I just did it, like I said, one day at a time, you know. One one person at a time, one listener at a time, one person in the audience at a time, you know. And I think if you try to tackle it all at once, if you're a young musician, artist, dancer, it's like if you try to plan it all out, you're in trouble, you know. What what is success to you? How do you how do you I mean, the things that you've accomplished, the recognitions that you've you've gotten, mm -hmm. um, and the and more than anything else, the people you've reached and connected with and changed their lives it's got to be success but in your mind do you have some sort of measure how is there is there something some way that you measure success for yourself yeah like i what i did is you know forever i was asking myself that question when will it feel like success because you know i remember being on stage with uh, finger 11 and their song paralyzed was number one in the u.s for seven weeks when we first met them I'm like, hey, congrats, guys. Like, I remember them when they were called the Rainbow Butt Monkeys. I'm like, you got your, your song's number one in the U.S. for seven weeks. And I remember Scott saying, like, yeah, we hope this happens. And then if we do this. And, uh, and I was kind of like, you made it. Like, enjoy. And we opened for them. And I remember getting on stage and I looked in the audience because I want to be Finger Eleven, you know. And then I'm looking in the audience and we're just the opening band. 
And then I saw some young guys looking at me and I could tell they were a band watching me. And they were going, they want to be me and I want to be Finger Eleven. You know, and if you don't stop and go like, enjoy this moment. But what I started doing is I started replacing the word success with significance. Because um, you can have a shiny car and a nice house and beautiful guitars and, you know, big audiences and stuff like that. But when you try to measure success, that's difficult because you can always compare yourself to something or someone. But if you're looking for significance, that's different. It's like, wow, I just saw that comment on Instagram. Wow, that person tattooed my lyric on their arm. Wow. You know, so, and there's nothing more fulfilling than somebody handing you a suicide note. But in the beginning, I was thinking, does this go back to zero tomorrow? Because I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just there to get people to open up and reach out for help, right? And for the first three years, it was really draining because I'm thinking, I'm, I'm watching people cry in front of me, handing me a suicide note, razor blades, and I'm crying with them. And it drained me until I realized those were not tears of somebody breaking down. Those were tears of somebody breaking through. And I was a part of that. You're not, I'm not responsible for the rest of their life. But we all have breakthrough moments where you know you were sitting or a conversation you were in were like, that was a key moment in my life. And that's what I try to live for every day. I try to decide every morning, either today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn something or I'm going to teach something to somebody. And if you start looking for that, <laughs> mowing somebody's lawn, the little things, you don't have to move to Africa and build a well to change the world. You know, it can be a phone call, it can be a text. I wonder what you know about suicide that most people wouldn't know. Having come into contact with so many people who've thought about it, having been given so many suicide notes. Well, I think the biggest mistake that people make when, they, when they've never been there is they, they call suicide selfish because they say, oh, you're taking your pain and you're giving it to somebody else. And that's true, that happens. You spread your pain to the people around you. But if you've never been there, you don't know that in that moment, there is a dark voice in your head that is convincing you that the most selfless thing you can do for the world around you, for your family and friends, is leave. You actually think you're doing the world a favor. So it's called selfish, but in that moment, you don't feel selfish. You feel like, I'm a burden to the world around me. I don't know how to control this pain in my head. So um, <laughs> I don't know how to channel it, you know. So I think that's the biggest thing. If you've never been there, you know, don't try to, you know, parents say, hey, what do I say to my kid? He's feeling suicidal. Like, what do you say to make it go away? I'm like, those words don't exist, you know. You don't have to say, yeah, I was depressed once too. Don't worry, you'll get over it. It's like, no, you are you available? You know, like somebody said, if your kid, you found out your kid's cutting or suicidal, A, you're 100 miles ahead of the most parents. Most parents are so distracted, they don't even know. So if you know your kid's struggling, you've done something right. But you're usually least effective in your own family. You know, like I'm six foot five, mohawk, beard, covered in tattoos. I would seem like the least approachable person for an 11 year old girl to give her suicide note to they've got she's got a mom or an aunt or a grandma but sometimes it takes somebody from outside their world because it's hard to open up to the people around us and you know i've met way too many parents that say like man a school counselor told me our kid was struggling and i didn't believe them now he's gone and they that torments them 
But then there's other people that are like, there's a, a couple I worked with in Ottawa. And they said, um, yeah, we knew our son was struggling. And I dropped him off at school that day. And I said, if you need anything, you know, just call me. I'll come pick you up. We'll go do something. And he goes, dad says to me, I'm glad I got to say that. But that's the last time I saw him. But he knows he was available. Like, if you need anything, I'm here. You know, and you don't have to say, I've been there myself. It's just like, I don't know what you're going through, but I'll sit with you through it. You know, and people are so um, nervous about, you know, like if your kid, you found out your kid had cancer, you would go to the doctor immediately and get help. You know, if your kid's struggling, your niece, your nephew is having suicidal thoughts, you see cuts on her arm, you know, you don't want to bring them to the doctor because what's that going to going to look bad on your kid people are going to judge your family because it's very interesting we've come a long way with mental illness but for the most part you know if, if your heart starts to fail you the whole community comes around brings you meals you know they're taking care of you if your brain starts to fail you it's like everybody runs the other way because they think they have to know what to say to you so like you don't have to know what to say just be like hey don't know what you're going through if you need anything i'm here even if it's just to listen you know how did you, after the nine months and deciding and realizing what, what, what good you bring and, and seeing schools calling you and people calling you and asking, how did you make this financially feasible in, in a way that you have sponsorships, in, in a way that you're busing in different school kids from different schools and, and putting on a big show? Yeah. Well, I think most people go, this is how much money we have, so this is what we'll do. And I flipped it the other way around. It's like, what are we supposed to do? Let's go do it. If it's what we're supposed to do, the rest will figure itself out. <laughs> so we'd go, we'd foot the bill, we got a line of credit, <laughs> we got our charitable status. That was, But I didn't have that for a while, so you couldn't even give a receipt. But you got people be like, hey, you helped my grandkid out when you came to Edmonton. Here's 200 bucks. Oh, cool. You know, but we were in, in this line of credit forever, just trying to make it, right? But then all of a sudden, somebody comes by and gives a little extra. And then all of a sudden, this one couple I never met saw a show. They went and bought the tour bus that Adele had been renting for her tour. They bought me the bus. Put wow. 15 flat screen TVs inside. Never asked for a thing. They said, don't stop what you're doing. Airlines, like perimeter airlines flying us up to reserves, people donating venues, people giving us deals and all kinds of stuff. You think when you have a record deal, you get free guitars and stuff like that? You don't get any of that. Now, Nash Guitars in Seattle, they make me all these custom guitars you see in my studio here. You do the right things and everybody wants to be a part of something significant. So when you go to Long McQuaid and they're like, oh, you're, you're that Rob guy. Yeah, man, you came to my daughter's school. Like, Hey, how, how can how, how can we help you out here? You know, like I got a guy that cuts my hair. He owns a salon. I can't do what you do, but I'll cut your hair. <laughs> Two massage therapists in my city are like, I can't do what you do, but I know about your injuries. We'll keep you moving so that you can keep out there. You know, surgeries. You know, I just got my skull rebuilt again at the Mayo Clinic in the states just uh, four years ago. Big bill. But we got a big donation from the doctor right afterwards once he asked about what we do. See, this is the thing and that people haven't explained yet, too, is when when I started seeing the amount of young people that were tattooing our lyrics on their arms where they used to cut, I thought, man, 
I'm that much a part of their life, how do I show them that they're that much a part of my life? And I went back to all the suicide notes we've been given, and I took all the names, all the signatures, and I tattooed them all on my arms. So my arms, both of them, are covered with all these names and signatures. And I'll tell you, when we get on a plane, you know, again, me and my crew, we're, we look like bikers. We're rock, <laughs> rockers, right? Leather jackets, and I'm 6'5 with a mohawk, tattoos. And you can see people's faces. They're like, oh, don't sit by me. And then you sit down, and they're like, oh, can I ask about the names on your arm? And I'll be like, oh, yeah. And then I explain, you know, we're on this tour where we're going around the world and uh, coast to coast in Canada anyway, talking to young people. And these are all names of names from the bottoms of suicide notes that we've been given. And I'll be like, wow, dude, I went through a pretty dark time like that myself. Or, man, my dad went through that. And all of a sudden you're having these big conversations, you know. And, and for me, I like showing, especially young men, like, it's okay to be edgy and rough <laughs> on the outside and still be vulnerable and compassionate on the inside, you know. Like, yeah, those two can coexist, you know. Does this have to be made in Canada? Like, I, is there an opportunity for you to go beyond to the states to europe and is that is that even a goal is that i mean i i know that before the pandemic you were ridiculously busy yeah and i presume you will be again is is there is there a next level or are you are you just so busy doing what you're doing i i think for the most part till now it's always been like people when they want to do something good they fly and do it in some other country they're not aware of what's going on in your own backyard you know we got right. literal Dozens of communities, indigenous communities, for example, that don't have running water, you know, like, and like, it's, it's tough to see that, but I could only be in one place at a time pre-COVID, you know, so we're doing a show in Edmonton, you couldn't be in Halifax, you know, but with this documentary, this documentary, we have meetings coming up with um, all the big hitters platforms that are really intrigued by this. And so the documentaries, I think, going to with all these stories of all these students, their stories are in the documentary. That's going to move people. And that could be in homes all over the place, you know, that, and um, through our social media and stuff like that. And what we also did, and this is what we're most excited about, is we took um, these stories from the documentary and we put together a team of teachers and social workers and psychologists and we took those stories into small episodes, into modules, and we made a school curriculum to help teachers. So it's we beta tested it in four provinces and um, multiple schools, took some feedback, did another beta test. And it's basically, they watch my story, they watch a music video about my story, and then they journal on the curriculum. They say, um, what was Rob's you know, struggle? They write it out. What was his breakthrough? They write it out. How did he get help? They write it out. How's he using his story to help other people? Then they watch Dylan, the kid with one arm I was telling you about, right? What was his struggle? What was his breakthrough? And then by the fourth module, it's like, what's your struggle? Where could you find your breakthrough? How could you get help? And so the curriculum is now available at robnash.ca, and we're getting calls because of our social media. And our producers that have produced me since my record deal days for free because they believe in what I do, they're like, hey, Rob, can we share your new music too? Like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, Eric Alper, as you know, is our publicist. He just told me two days ago, he's like, Rob, I never want to stop working with you and I'll do it for free. He's amazing. Jeff Rogers, 
Uh, Steve, our, my producer, put us in touch with Eric. He put us in touch with Jeff Rogers, who's an amazing guy. Put us in touch with Stephen Stone, one of the best entertainment lawyers in Canada. You know, and then Jeff goes, he went and reached out to Warner Music Canada said i'm working with this guy i think you should get involved with this so warner music said we're going to help you distribute and get this out to radio and podcasts we're going to get you out to to a spotify playlist and now like i just had somebody from i'm not going to say what country but overseas saying hey can you help my husband took his life and my son is in the same position now we don't have somebody like you and guess what we can say like yeah there's this curriculum you know they can do it at the school and he can open up to the school counselors, you know. And we have great partnerships here in Canada with Kids Help Phone and Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, Royal Bank put us in touch with them saying, let's unite and fight together. And that's what our new album is. The title track and, and this album, 18 songs, and it's called This Is War. And I came up with the title because it, it was a song idea I had a while back. But, you know, I, I never used to say yes to the awards that I was offered because I thought I didn't want any of the students to think this was a publicity stunt, you know, but I knew if I accepted the awards, that would give me a little more credibility to teachers and principals. Right. And, um, at one award ceremony, the other three dudes getting the award, they were all missing limbs, wearing their army fatigues. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> I just play music. Right. <laughs> but then they introduced me and they said, this next guy's fighting a different kind of a war, a war against an invisible enemy called mental illness. And the musician in me went, I could write about that. So the whole album talks about the moments when you're on the front lines, when you're in triage, when you're starting to have triumphs, you know. And, and uh, yeah, and it, and it also challenges the fact that, like, in the Western world, we think we've created paradise, right? Everybody wants to live in, you know, North America. This is paradise. Is it? Is this the promised land we think it is? It's where there's the most suicides. It's where there's the most overdoses. And, uh I think we've lost our way, you know, and... Um, why, why do you think there is more suicides? Well, I think... Is it pressure? It's pressure. It's lack of identity. You know, I think our... You know, my dad is from Belize. Um, my mom, uh, Mexico. And, you know, we came here, uh, like so many, you know. And, um, and when I go visit my dad's family in Belize, <laughs> I remember one time I surprised only one cousin I knew I was coming. And I went there, he picks me up, and everybody the next day is like, hey, we're going to go to the ocean. Oh, we're going to go tubing through the caves. Ah. And after three, four days, I'm like, do you guys not have jobs? Like, yeah. And like, well, I'm here for three weeks. Are you going to do this all week? All the whole time I'm here? They're like, yeah. I'm like, what did you tell your bosses? And they're like, we told them families here. I'm like, they're okay with that? They're like, yeah, family. And then, I kid you not, maybe two years later, my cousin surprised me. I'm in Canada! And I was like, oh, cool, man. Um, I can meet you for coffee next Thursday at 8.45. I got like half hour. And, like, there's a lot to that. But within my family, I see that. We are so preoccupied with having shiny things and more <laughs> that's an evil word more right and if you're so focused on your careers and not your family your kids we we put our our emphasis in in weird places and we don't look out for each other like i do i was on a reserve four hours from major city i'm in the and, and by the way when we started going to reserves 
okay, here comes another white, white boy trying to save the day. So there was some tension. Once they saw I was genuine, I was given my spirit name. They call me Bear Protect. They call me Protector. They call me Bear Chief. That's the spirit name they gave me. And um, once they saw that I was genuine, they embraced me like family. But in one of four hours from a major city, I'm usually the only non-indigenous person in the room, and I see I see two black nuns in the audience, and I'm thinking I've never seen this before. <laughs> I walked up and I said. Where are you from? What's your story? And they said, we're from Africa. And what are you doing here? And they said, we heard about the issues on the reserves in Canada. Our church flew us here. We knew about some of the stuff that happened in the past. They flew us here, and we live on the reserve, and we drive to the city and get water and food, and we feed the kids at lunch that don't have food. And my mind went, wow, think of the layers to that. What are they raising their currency to pull that off? Right? How many people, how much money do we send to Africa? And that's beautiful. But how many, this is four hours from a major city in Canada. How many people have taken a look what's going on, you know? Like in our own backyard. And not all reserves are, like, it's, there's wonderful things. I've learned so much from the, the indigenous people, right? But, but man, like, we, you ask why it's so different here, like wh why we're suicidal, why we, I think we've just lost identity, you know, we're just, you know, there's enough water for everybody, there's enough food for everybody, we were supposed to be a people that take care of one another, you know, and we were so self-absorbed, we are so busy looking in the mirror, we are so busy taking selfies, you know, in our young generation, you know, like you're so focused and you used to be able to go to school and the bullying was over at 3.30. Now you go home and you find it, it's all night online, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, getting back to the core beliefs of what made us compassionate people that look out for one another, not just ourselves. Do you ever feel that, uh, I'm sorry about this question, but do you ever feel it, it being a burden to you? I mean, I just think amazing work that you do and, the, and what you must encounter. Um, does it ever weigh heavy on you? It does, if if I let it. Um, because, you know, my arms are covered with names of people that was able to help a bit. And I don't ever say that I've saved somebody's life or I've changed somebody's life. I'm trying to make people okay with who they are. I think if change is supposed to happen, conviction comes from within. It doesn't come from me. But if I'm not careful, like no matter what city I land in, if I was in Saskatoon and I get to Vancouver, there's been another tragedy. I could cover my body with the names of people I haven't been able to get to before something bad happened. And it's easy to do that. But that's why if you, you could see me right now, the audience can't, but around me are paintings kids have made for me. You know, um, you know that, that's where I keep the suicide notes. You know, I've got these tattoos of all these names on my arms because when I get tempted, and I'm human, I'm nobody looks up to me because I'm a perfect example. I'm a screw up that's willing to start over. But when I get self-absorbed, I have all these reminders around, around me to remind me why I'm here, that this is bigger than me. My life is important because it matters to somebody else. And that's something I think we've just kind of lost, you know. I mean, could you have ever expected it to be where it is right now? Like, it's pretty impressive what you've accomplished. Yeah, you know, I get, I get, I guess, I guess it's impressive. Um, 
all I do is listen to the promptings in my heart. And when you start doing that, it's an addiction. It really is. And it's very satisfying, right? And it should not be impressive to listen to the promptings in your heart. It shouldn't be worthy of a medal to get... But man, so few people are available to listen to those promptings, to look outside themselves. And so for me, it's like, don't do anything spectacular. Like reach out to somebody, pay for the person's coffee behind you, get a taste of it because it's addictive. So, you know, for me, it's, I always say, it's like, I'm not the best singer or guitar player. I'm not the most talented person, but I'm like, if there's something that needs to be done today and you can't find somebody better, I'm available. And when you wake up and you come up into every day, I'm available. I'm available today for something. When you have that mindset, it's it's all around you. And uh, yeah, it does, I don't know, it's just, it's one day at a time and it's never felt impressive. It's, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling. It's fulfilling a living a life like this, but I think uh, it's in everybody's grasp to do something to the community around you. Well, you chose this path, you wanted to be heard. You wanted to tell your story and, and, you know, judging by the great videos and the great music that you make, I mean, this is war. It's a, it's a great video. Thank you. Um, I, what is it? When is it coming out? Uh, well, the first three songs, this is war is out. Um, uh, Apple music, Amazon, um, Simon, the album. Spotify, uh, the album is come around June probably, but we're doing three songs at a time in the next few weeks. Every every few weeks, three songs come out because it's a lot. There's 18, and we want to be able to like really feed the feed everybody. You know, a few songs at a time. So the album will come out sometime in summer. It was going to be June 22nd, might be pushed back a bit. We just found out from Warner, but um, but yeah, it's um. We're really excited, and you know, I want to say this too. You you complimented the video for this is war. This guy came up to me. We did a show at the Addictions Foundation in Alberta. This guy walks up to me and he goes, Hey, man, um, I love your music, your song, Hello Goodbye, which we talked about before. That really helped me when I was in prison. I was in jail for 11 years. I'm like, oh, cool, man. I'm glad the music inspired you. He goes, now I'm out of prison. He goes, I'm making music videos. Can I do a video for you? And I said, um, well, you've been in jail for 11 years. <laughs> it's like, can you be any good at this? And... Um, <laughs> I'm like, show me something you've done. He showed me. And I'm like, yeah, let's do something. So he shot. And I said, let's do a video for Hello Goodbye, if you like the song. So we shot it. And I'm like, this dude's talented. And then he shot another video. So he did that that video for This Is wow. War. What's his name? His name is Frenzy. He's an amazing guy. And uh, yeah, if you go to my social media, you can find him. But super talented. But another guy that nobody believed in. He's got rough around the edges, you know. But gifted. Wow. Rob, thank you so much for taking this time. Uh, as as Eric said, I would be impressed, and I am. Like, and I know that's not why you do it, but what you do is pretty special. And and we, you know, maybe it gets lost in, in the fact that you do these amazing things, that that you actually make good music. Appreciate it. You know, that. And, I, and, uh, and that maybe this doesn't even happen if the music wasn't good or yeah. if you weren't a good player. So... Thanks for that, and and thanks for all you do. It's 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 an honor to speak with you. Yeah, I appreciate. It. And you know, um, yeah, when young bands come up, hey, we want to do what you do. I'm like, how long you been playing? Seven months. I'm like, okay, hey, get good at your craft because, <laughs> like, if you want to go in front of inmates or whatever, like, 
you get good at your craft, you know, get good. So I appreciate that you respect the musically. We, we worked hard at it, you know, so, you know, I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate you as well, you know, like uh, doing a lot of radio interviews and podcasts right now. And, and, you know, I can tell when people are having a conversation or reading off of a paper, I can tell that you're not just operating with your head, but you're operating with your heart. And so I thank you for helping us get this message out there. So I appreciate you. Truly my honor. Uh, People should check out your website. There's a lot of amazing things on there. Um, We don't know when the documentary will be available or how it will be available, but it will be available. Very soon, yep. If you go to our website and social media, look for Rob Nash, Rob with two Bs. And uh, yeah, if you follow us, we'll be updating all the time with new songs coming out with the documentary. The curriculum is available. Uh, If you can sponsor a school because we have licensing fees for every student that we have to pay for. And uh, yeah, so we're just, um, yeah, we're just trying to get the help out there that we have now. Great. Thank you, Rob. Thank you.